mingling in the, in, the, in the crowds after Jesus told his parables because he very rarely explained them and the meaning wasn't always very obvious and I would love to have heard some of the discussions that took place uh, just after he had finished telling some of these stories. It would have been intriguing to, to hear the, the, how they tried to unpack them. Historians tell us that this particular story about the nobleman would have resonated with them. Uh, Herod the Great, in his will, divided his vassal kingdom between his three sons, uh, and the, own, the older of the son was Archelaus. And when Archelaus went to, as, uh, 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 to Rome to claim his title, there was a delegation from Judea sent to say, we don't think this man should be king. And to that extent, and to, to lobby uh, the emperor that this, this man was not fit to be a king. So to that, <clears throat> to that extent, this parable would have, uh, would have been similar and resonated with what was going on. There's an interesting aside here, which I just couldn't help but notice, that the emperor appointed him as governor. He actually denied him the position of king until he approved uh, worthy of it. Uh, and it seemed to me that Archelaus was probably not the first politician from the margins of Europe to go to the center of power of Europe with an agenda and come home somewhat disappointed. Um, I think others have, have followed a similar, a similar path. But essentially, a story of a nobleman leaving the country to go to claim his title as king, and for those some of the citizens of the country uh, to reject him as king would have been a very familiar uh, story to them. So in Jesus' parable, this nobleman gave an equal sum of money to 10 of his servants, his slaves. And he asked them to work and invest and work, make this money work for me in my absence. And when I come back, we'll see how you've done. And I suppose the plan was obvious that uh, those who succeed could be, he could then consider for positions of responsibility within the state if they had proved their worth. So the first chap, he took this task very seriously. He, he worked from morning to night, he traded, he, he put this money to really good use. He took his, his task diligently. And by the time the nobleman returned, he had returned a thousand percent, ten times the original money uh, he had to show for his work. And the king re rewarded him lavishly, way beyond anything that he had gained. He made him governor of ten cities in the province, way beyond anything that uh, you know he would have. The money itself would have gained even in tenfold. Now the second chap, he liked a good work-life balance, so he found a couple of good fund managers and uh, invested the money quite wisely. But he did go off and play golf every afternoon. And when he, the, the king returned, when the nobleman returned, he had returned 500% growth, which is still a pretty good return on your capital. And again, of course, the, the, the governor, the, the king rewards him lavishly, way beyond anything that he had gained, out of all proportion. The third servant uh, took his money and, and stuffed it in an envelope and put it below his mattress, basically. 
and handed it back to the nobleman when he returned. And the nobleman basically told him that at least he could have gone for a cash ISA. It wouldn't have gained much, but it would have been better than nothing. And so the parable begins, while they were listening to this. So we need to know a little bit about what the context is in order to understand it. So we know from the previous chapter that Jesus is with his 12 disciples. They have reached Jericho, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. And chapter 18 and verse 30, with the previous chapter, verse 31, he said, he took the 12 aside and he said, them, said to them, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. So they know that he will be rejected by many. That bit they've got. But they also know by now in Jesus' ministry that in some sense the kingdom of God has come, is coming in Jesus' ministry. So they, they've got some of it, but they, don't, they haven't quite grasped it. It's coming, to, and, it, and they know it's coming to a climax in Jerusalem. They know they're on their way. Jesus has just told them what's about to happen. So it is in that context that Luke says, while they listened to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear at once. That's what they thought. And Luke tells us that Jesus told the parable in order to correct their misunderstanding. So how did the parable serve that purpose? How did it correct their misunderstanding? Now, it seems most likely, doesn't it, that the absence signifies the present age between Jesus' coming and Jesus' kingdom being inaugurated in his death and resurrection and his coming again to bring about its final realization. And in Jesus' story, some citizens of the kingdom didn't recognize him as king, and so his own people rejected him as king. So what do we learn from the ten servants? They were entrusted with money. They were given responsibility and told to put their time and their resources to the benefit of the king. And they should use it as wisely and as effectively as they could as they wait the return of the king. And so, likewise, we have been given time. We've been given resources of various types, be it money, be it talents, abilities, opportunities, which we can choose to use for the, build it for, for the king, to work for God's kingdom, than to work for the king. We all have them. 
to varying, of varying types. And we can use them in the time that we have available in the service of our Lord and Master. That bit seems fairly obvious, I think, in the story. But what is clear in the story is that there is a connection between how the servants chose to live, the degree of diligence which they gave the task in hand. There is some connection between that, how they did all that while the king was away, and their life, what their life looked like when the king returned. There was, a, there was a connection between the before and after. That seems clear in the story. And while it may be tempting to use the word reward, I think I used it by mistake already when we're speaking of this, it is actually, it, it's not used in the passage, but sometimes in reference to this parable, the word is reward is used. But I think the term is both unhelpful and confusing. It's unhelpful because it suggests that we serve the Lord with the, with the sole reason that when He returns, we'll get a, a pat on the back and given some kind of reward. Uh, it, uh, when I think of reward, I think of a police notice where they're looking for information or, or something, and then they say, you know, if you give us information, we will give you uh, this reward. But in the New Testament, the, the connection between how we live in the present and how that feeds through into God's new creation doesn't work like that. There's a connection but it doesn't work like that. It isn't a matter of calculation, of doing a difficult job, and then at the end of it, we get given a reward, we get given our wages for doing it. It just is not like that. In the new heavens and the new earth, the great hope of the Christian life, there is an entirely new way of life awaiting us and a very exciting one. And it seems to me that the teaching of the New Testament is this, and the teaching of this story, that as we use the time and the resources at our disposal, like the mina given to the servant, as we put those resources to work, to work for the kingdom of God, and as we develop the character traits of the kingdom, as we put them to work, and as we develop the character traits here and now in the life that God has given us, that effort, that character transforming work of the Holy Spirit in this present life is directly connected to who we will be in God's new creation. Just forgive me if I repeat that little bit because I think it's, it's, it's really the nub of what I'm trying to say. That as we use the time and the resources that God has given us, 
as we use the resources for the working to put to work for the kingdom of God, and as we develop the character traits of that kingdom here and now, that effort, that character transforming work of the Holy Spirit will feed through into who we will be in God's new creation. Now, let's just be clear. We do not become citizens of God's new kingdom through our own effort. That we achieve through the atoning life and death and resurrection of Jesus. There's no, let's not misunderstand that. But there is some sense in which the way in which we choose to live will feed through into God's, into who we will be in that new creation. I think we can draw some parallel with marriage. We know, don't we, that whether it be in marriage or even in a, a close human friendship, that it is as we t spend time together, as we serve each other, as we're prepared to be inconvenienced for the other person, as we share life's experiences together, as we no longer live entirely for ourselves but for the other, then all the effort, all the commitment is rewarded by a rich relationship of trust and intimacy which are one of the greatest joys of human experience. Of course, we're human. We get it wrong now and again. We fail. But you get the drift of what I'm saying, I hope. And so it is with our relationship with God. We all know that it's not a matter of 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. We know that. The Hebrew Bible has a wonderful word which is translated both sir, to serve and to worship. So when Moses was instructed to go to Pharaoh uh, to get the release of his people from captivity in Egypt, it, it, in some versions it reads, let my people go that they may serve me. And others... It will read, let my people go so that they may worship me. Same word. So we serve as we worship, and we worship and serve. And as we allow the Spirit of God to transform us, as we nurture the character traits of the kingdom, we will be blessed out of all proportion to the effort that we have put into it. These ten people were slaves, and they were given ten, they were made governor of ten cities. No, no sense of proportion there whatsoever. And, let, and as we receive this promise, and if the promise that we had from God was solely that in God's new creation that would be the, what we would enjoy. That in itself would be an amazing hope that we would carry through life, wouldn't it? The reality, of course, is much greater. 
that as this work of renewal and transformation takes place, here and now, we can begin to enjoy the foretaste of those blessings. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus says to the first of the two servants, the first two servants, come and enjoy and enter the joy of your master. Come and enter the joy of your master. One day, we will fully, unhindered, enter into that joy. But isn't it amazing that we can begin here and now to participate in that? Even in the midst of challenges and the difficulties of life, even when we sense, even when we lose that sense of joy, we encourage each other and we pray and we find our way back to the joy of His presence. When I was thinking about this, uh, one of my favorite hymns came to mind, and it's not one that we, we sing. It was written by George Matheson, who was a, a minister of a church in Edinburgh, who became blind when he was 20. And his, his fiancée said to him, he, he had been um, uh, engaged to be married, and his fiancée said that she couldn't cope with living with a blind man, and she left him. And his sister looked after him and read the Bible to him, and he became an, um, had an amazing ministry. And on the eve of his sister's wedding, when he was 40, this is 20 years uh, after he became blind, he had a deep, deep, dark moment when all of this came flooding back, and he sat down and wrote this hymn in five minutes, and it starts, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. What an amazing words. Verse four, the third verse just starts, the first line. O joy that seekest me through pain. Isn't that beautiful? O joy that seekest me through pain. Jesus said to his faithful servants, come and enter into the joy of your master. The amazing thing is that we don't need to wait till the end of our lives to enter into that joy, that even in the pain, it can be found indescribable joy. If you were here last week when Lucy was speaking about the parable of the workers in the vineyard, you may be resisting the temptation to put your hand up and say, but according to the workers in the vineyard, they all received the same wages. So isn't there a contradiction? Make, it, make up your mind. <laughs> well, both parables are about grace. Um, 
And it seems to me that today's parable about the Minas teaches that the more seriously we take this task, the more devoted that we are to our Lord and His service, the, the greater will be our capacity to enjoy His presence both now and in the future. The parable about the workers in the vineyard says to me, it's never too late to start. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? The, the, the worker who, who only started work at five o'clock and worked to six got the same as a full day's wages. What an encouragement. I haven't got it right for most of my life. I can go out this door today and make this decision that from this day on, this, I'm serious about this. And God will not deny me his joy. What an encouragement. I was touched by the first verse of the hymn that we sang. Um, and can we just bow our heads and I'll say it as a prayer for us just now. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Amen.